All right, you can turn to John 15. Thank you, Dan. You know, they say that girls marry their dad, that kind of thing. That didn't happen in our family. But um, anyway, it's great to have Dan as a part of our uh, family. Um, take your Bibles and turn to John 15, and we're, I've been given two portions of Scripture, and as soon as I saw the portions of Scripture that I, were, that I was given, I knew I was doomed right away. And I'll explain that in a few minutes, and you'll see why I'm a bit nervous about this. Um, but I, I want to do something a little different. I think what, what I do today is going to be different than anything that you've ever seen uh, done before in a message on the subject that we're going to do. But I was really nervous about it until I got here and realized that you have some study in, in culture of how foreign languages look at or foreign, um, um, foreign countries look at the scriptures. And I'm going to end with that because that's exactly what's going on here in these scriptures. But I was given two portions of scriptures and the key word here, uh, the, the title was chosen with choices. And, uh, and so as I looked at that title and I looked at the scriptures that was given to me, the word chosen was the word that stood out. And, you know, that gives all kinds of uh, um, implications, and we're going to address those implications. And you'll see my bias, obviously, but I'm not here today to uh, influence you in a bias. All I want you to do is study the word uh, the way God intended for you to study the word through proper biblical hermeneutics. And to not look at the Bible eisegetically, but to look at it exegetically. And I'll explain all that if that's foreign to you. But I, I don't want to take any time with John 15, 16, and 17. That was one portion of Scripture given to me. It takes 40 minutes to explain this one verse. But I'm going to give you the nutshell of it, and you're probably going to disagree with me. But I have proof to show you if you ever want to come and, and look at this. But in uh, John 15... The two verses uh, given here is verses 16 and 17. It says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And 17, this is my commandment, love each other. Immediately you see uh, implications of, you know, something like predestination here because you can't choose Jesus, Jesus chooses you. Well, that's not what this verse is saying. And if you want to believe that, that's fine, but you can't prove that out of this portion of Scripture. This has a completely different logic to it. This is a whole portion of Scripture from the upper room all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is the last chance that Jesus has to get through to a nutsy group of guys that will not believe what he's here to do. And so he's trying to inoculate them one more time. And it actually says that in chapter 16, verse 1. But I can show you how he choose, chose these 11 guys. Judas has already left the scene, so he's only talking to the 11. This has nothing to do with salvation. This is trying to tell the disciples, this was my plan, it was not your plan, and that's why you don't understand it. I want you to get this one more time. And he's being pretty graphic with these people. And from this portion of Scripture, chapter 14 all the way to 17, this is the longest message Christ ever preached on a trek from the upper room down past Caiaphas' house, down through the old city of David, and down past out the Garden Gate and up the, across the Kidron Valley and up over to the Garden of Gethsemane uh, in that area across from the Eastern Gate. I've walked it many times. I know exactly where this is taking place. The amazing thing is, John remembers what he said. All of these chapters 
are out of John's memory. This is just mind-boggling to realize that Jesus has this huge message that he's preaching in just about an hour or two before Caiaphas and his ilk come and grab him and take him off. Uh, you know, and so this is an amazing portion of scripture. I don't have time to go into it, but if you really want a, back, uh, a background on this, you can take a look at Luke chapter 6, verse 12 and verse 13, tells you exactly how he chose them. This was not a predestinated thing. This was just simply uh, good logic. It's actually something that God teaches us to choose people, like if you're choosing deacons or elders out of a group of people. Okay, done. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and verse 5, we have a more volatile portion of Scripture. The one I just shared with you is pretty benign. But if you look at this portion of Scripture, this is highly volatile, and I'll share with you why this is so volatile in uh, Christendom today. But let's take a look at it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and verse 5, it says in verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And then the next verse starts actually right here. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his good pleasure and will. Now, I don't want to go into uh, verse 5. You'll see why later. But verse 4 is the concentrating verse here that we're going to look at. Now, when you study hermeneutics, and maybe some of you have problems with hermeneutics. Basically, I did at first because I hate the name. Uh, you know, it's named after the god Hermes, and all you got to do to study the god Hermes is realize he's the poster child uh, for, uh, you know, pretty much Satan. And so you're saying, okay, wait a minute, I'm trying to interpret the very breath of God by, uh, uh, you know, a study that starts out wrong already. And then you ask this question, you say, okay, wait a minute, I understand the canonization process came up with a bunch of guys getting together and they come up with about five good rules to how, what books should be in the Bible, what books shouldn't. That makes perfect sense to me, but when you're trying to describe the breath of God, this is life or death, people, and you're trying to come up with a set of rules. How can we dare say that man can come up with a set of rules to interpret the Word of God? Well, it's pretty simple when you start looking at what hermeneutics is. It's basically as you look at language, structure, and culture, and background, and history, and all that sort of thing that involves hermeneutical principles, you realize that basically hermeneutical principles or Bible interpretation principles are all about language, basically. Um, and so you ask this question, where did language come from? Who knows where language came from? Anybody? Anybody got a Bible? Where? Yes, from God. All right. So we have language then coming from God. Well, that's a good start then, isn't it? Tower of Babel, right? All right. Well, any translator will tell you that the rules of language come out of the language. You cannot put the rules of language into language. They must study language after you have learned how to speak it. You must study the language to gain the rules of language to come out of that language. And so therefore, if language comes from God, where do the rules of language come from? Come on, people. You're faster than this, aren't you? Where do the rules of language come from if language comes from God? God. All right. So basically then, hermeneutical principles are God's interpretation of his own word. You know, basic Bible study methods in this, set, in, this set, um, in this sense is saying that God made this up and God gave us this manual on his manual. That's pretty cool. So then I got relaxed a little bit and I realized that, okay, what I've got to do then is completely understand hermeneutical principles. Now, I like Verkler because he's not a theologian. 
I have problems with theologians and their logic. And Verkler is a psychologist. And Verkler is uh, really good with logic. He has actually gone to some of the same schools that I have gone to. And uh, he, I identify with Verkler quite a bit. And it's very simplistic, especially for lay people. It's a very simplistic thing. I like it better than any other hermeneutical study. So if you really want to understand hermeneutics, and I understand that they may even use Verkler here, I'm not sure. But it's an excellent book written by a psychologist who was forced to, as I was forced to, take logic courses. That seems to be missing in our DIV program. But logic courses that teach you to learn and understand argumentation, you know, how the people argue and the deceptive reasoning that people have. As I go through systematic theology after systematic theology, I scratch my head and I think, where is the logic in these people? Now, you know, you're going to... You're going to get papal on me here, and you're going to say, okay, as your Nickelodeon or Nickelodeon attitude about this, you're going to say, all right, wait a minute, you know, you've got to, you can't take the scriptures logically, you've got to take them spiritually, you know, well, so what? But you've got to also understand that God is very logical, and we even see that in this portion of scripture as he lays down the cosmos, which is cosmos in order, the universe in order. God does everything in order. He's very logical. And if you would do yourself a favor, take some courses in logic, and then go back and study theology, and you'll be surprised. You'll roll your eyes as I do many times. All right, so anyway, we have this, this study, but we have a problem in the study of the Word of God because we commit eisegesis. Do you know what exegesis is? Have you ever heard of anybody say, well, our pastor speaks in an exegetical way. And what they mean by that is that their pastor takes verse by verse and word by word and squeezes every word until it's dry but doesn't let any drip fall to the ground. I know right then they don't know what they're talking about because that is not exegetical Bible teaching. All right? They say, well, our pastor does not teach, you know, with... Uh, with uh, I've lost it with the other style. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, teach with, um, you know, topical messages. That was it. That was easy. Why didn't I come up with that? What were you? You're supposed to tell me. It's topical messages. And, and so because he doesn't teach topically, then he is an exegetical Bible teacher. Let me tell you something. They don't know what they're talking about. Exit. It's a Greek word. It's a place to go out. Exegesis means you take out of the text what's really there. Eisegetical teaching is putting into the text what's not there. All right? So, exegetical teaching, you can teach a topical message exegetically. You can also teach a verse by verse, chapter by chapter, word by word. You can do that eisegetically, right? Because you can put into those words something that is not there. And that's what we do with the word chosen. We often teach it in an eisegetical way because we do something in reverse. Instead of look, going down through the logical process of her biblical hermeneutics, starting with language and going down to culture and history and going down to uh, textual um, understanding of the thing and also the, uh, uh, you know, where does this fit in the context, comparing authors by authors and so on and so forth. As we go through that, we usually start with theology first and that's the wrong way to do it. Theology is at the bottom of that list. Don't get your theology and then study the word of God. You will always commit eisegesis. You will always do that. Now, there isn't a person here that hasn't done it, okay? There's not a person here that cannot commit eisegesis. I try to be an exegetical preacher. I really do. And you must try very hard to do that, but your own bias will show up. Your own uh, 
influence will show up. Funny thing that happened uh, to me. I'm a mechanic. I like building street rods and so on and so forth and restoring motorcycles and whatever. But, uh, you know, I'm getting older, so the speed isn't the big thing for me. It's just the kind of the comfort. You know, I'm kind of an, a soft slipper shoe kind of guy now. So, you know, I, I bought this basket case Triumph Spitfire, and probably you know what that is. It's a Brit car, right? So I buy this spot, uh, Triumph Spitfire, and I've moved every bolt and nut in the whole car. I've rebuilt everything about it. So that's either really cool or I bought a lemon. Not sure. So you have this uh, Triumph Spitfire, and you're kind of proud of it. It's a little red and black convertible, little two-seater, and they are not fast, but they look fast. That's what's important. And so, they, you know, their top speed's about 80 miles an hour unless you really want to jazz them up. That's about uh, what a Triumph Spitfire does. So those of you that have ever had one, you can experience that. So anyway, I, my wife for Christmas gets me this beautiful red hat with black lettering on the front of it, Triumph, right? And I, I used to get these weird looks from people. Now, while I was in the car, you know, people would pass me because I can only do about 60. So people are passing me and then they slow down and they come back and they go, ooh, you know that. And I pull into a parking lot and people come, wow, that's a cool car. What is that? What's well, a Triumph Spitfire. Wow, is that fast? No, but it looks fast. Yeah. So, you know, they, they, uh, they are okay with me as long as I'm with my car. But as soon as I go into the store and I got this hat on, I was getting dirty looks from people and people were shunning me and it was just the weirdest thing until one of my buddies in my club, he has a Triumph t-shirt. Now, I have a Triumph t-shirt too, but I usually ride that when I'm riding my uh, Bonneville. So, you know, I don't wear the t-shirt in the, in the car. I dress more like a, you know, scarf kind of guy and let the wind go through my hair. And so then uh, it's just a fun car. You smile when you drive it. You can reach out and touch the ground, but I wouldn't recommend that at 60. So anyway, you have this Triumph Spitfire t-shirt now he's got on his, he goes into the grocery store, he goes around the frozen food sink and this lady starts screaming at him. I can't believe it. And she just starts yelling at him and she starts picking up frozen turkeys and things and, and, and baloney and starts throwing them at him and he says I just I just stood there I, could, I couldn't believe it and he said lady what is wrong with you she says I just can't believe I can't believe you voted for that man it says triumph not Trump now apparently people were looking at my hat and his t-shirt isogetically did you get that? They were reading into it something that wasn't there. And anytime that you see the word chosen or elected, do you know Jesus was elected and he ain't getting saved? So, you know, let's not talk about election that way. And we have predestination, which you'll find in the second verse here that we're reading. You see these words and immediately you think that they are meaning this. And that is being eisegetical. It's taking your theology and sticking it in there. And what you need to do is ask yourself this question. As soon as I see one of these words, what is the context? What does it really mean? What is it really saying? And I find that people have a hard time looking at these things exegetically, okay? So as we go on here, I want to give you something to help you understand why I'm so nervous about this, all right? Because uh, this is bizarre. Here we go. Kenneth Weiss. Are you familiar with Weiss Greek's word studies? Are you familiar with that? Now, the guy died in 61, so you may not be familiar, but he's an important man. He was a uh, Greek uh, teacher at Moody, and he also was one of the translators of the NIV, which is one of the, not, excuse me, not NIV, uh, NASB, which is the closer translation, along with the King James, by the way. These are excellent translations if you want a genuine meaning for meaning. The NIV is so stinking loose. I have to explain the NIV more than I have to explain an old King James. 
I mean, I'm telling you, the NIV, I think they're trying to want to be politically correct or something. They translate word for word, okay, but their meanings are so loose, they have missed the point in so many places. We need a new English translation, but the NASB is probably one of the closest ones. So, you know, that kind of got my attention, and so I thought, let's see what Weist has to say about it. Let's see what Kenneth has to say about, uh, you know, this portion of Scripture. Listen to this. He says this, I quote, verses 3 through verse 14. How many verses? 3 through 14. Oh, gosh, I'm in math class. I should know that one. All right. 11 verses. 11 verses is one sentence in the Greek. Okay, now, if you did that on your computer, you're going to get a green line. Right? It's going to say, don't you want to rephrase that? Shut up. And you have, this, you have this extended sentence. And he says that this sentence is the longest sentence, the longest sentence of connected discourse in existence. Now, that's very important. So, you know, the translators are really going to have fun with that one. They're really going to have fun with that one. So they break it down into 11 verses, uh, you know, so that there's not any ambiguity in this thing. However, duh, there's lots of ambiguity because let me tell you this about this portion of Scripture, and here's why I'm so nervous. This is the most controversial portion of Scripture in the entire Bible, other than possibly Romans 9. All right, most controversial portion of Scripture. There are a lot of houses of cards built on this portion of Scripture, and this morning, I'm going to yank at the bottom card. And when I yank at that bottom card, your theology is going to fall or it's going to stand. All right? Can we have some fun with this? All right, so let's take, you know, I'm not a Greek scholar. I've had Greek, and I understand it enough to respect it, and I understand it enough to point out a phony when I hear one. But here's the point. If these Greek scholars who interpreted this portion of Scripture and translated it into English, if they have their beans about them, then can we take the English and tear it apart and actually see what this one verse is saying? Now, this is only the beginning, and if you understand Greek, the most important thing usually happens at the end of a list. We always put the most important at the top. Greeks usually put it at the bottom so that you remember that. That would be a good lesson for parents, for teenagers. But anyway, we have this translation for us here, all right? And so as we look at this translation, I'm going to break it down for you. And if you're not an English major, that's fine. But here it goes. The subject is he. The main verb is chose. Uh, there's an object called us. There are three adverb prepositional phrases. They begin with in, before, and of. And actually the of one is in the before one. So you've got a prepositional phrase within a prepositional phrase. Then there's an infinitive verb to be, which will take 30 minutes to explain that portion of scripture. And then there are two adjectives, holy and blameless. And then there's an adjective prepositional phrase in his sight. I'm not really interested in all of that. I want to know what this word chose is all about. That is the verb. So I want to know then what the adverbial prepositional phrases are in this portion of scripture because here's the problem with this portion of scripture it is what was chosen that's the only problem we have with this that's the only argument most people agree that this whole section this whole one long sentence is about salvation and it's about God's blessing and then it's about what the attributes of that blessing upon our life but they disagree when it comes to what was chosen that's the problem is it us that was chosen before the foundation of the world or is it something else now when you're hermeneutically studying something there's a principle here Ron Carlson 
probably the leading expert, he died in 2010, but one of the most leading experts in the cult says this, if your truth does not add up to the scriptures, if it doesn't agree with the majority of scripture, then it is cultish and not truth. And we all go, oh yeah, brother, teach it. You know, and so we're talking about, we're talking about the cults, but when it comes to a theologian and his theology, which is basically theory, I know it's supposed to be the study of God, but it's usually not, the study of their theory about how doctrine or dogma is presented in the Bible, they take their theory and they place it into places. They can disagree with the majority of text and we call it blessed. No, it's cultish people just by its own definition. The basic bottom line of contextual analysis is that it must agree with scripture from the context, the pretext, the post-text, to the writings by the same author, to the writings by books that are comparable by the rest of the chapters in the New Testament, the rest of the chapters with the Old Testament. It must agree with scripture. So if it is us that was chosen before the foundation of the world, let me tell you this, it disagrees with the scriptures. If it was us. Now, you may find a couple verses that may teach your theology, but it's not going to agree with the majority of the text. So you've got a problem. Now, this is the way they explain it to me. Well, I don't understand why it disagrees, but it's still true. Or they have some mythological door in heaven that says, well, on this side it says, for whomsoever will. And you go through it, on the other side it says, only the elect. Well, if you've got to prove your theology by a mythological door in heaven, you've got a problem. So I have an issue with this right now. So let's take a look then and let's see what was chosen, all right? What is the adverb? Because see, the, the adjective prepositional phrases point back to the noun, right? But the adverb prepositional phrases point to the verb, the chosen. So let's see, all right? What are they? Well, the adverb prepositional phrases are in him before the laying down of the cosmos, all right. So what we have then is the way of salvation was chosen before the foundations of the world. In fact, there's a cute word here, uh, a cute word that, uh, you know, this word of chosen is in the middle voice of Greek, meaning that God bought his own Christmas present. Yeah. He went out and got, you know, they tried to get him a Christmas present. And they can't figure out, you know, well, what does God want? And he says, well, just give me the money. I'll buy my own. And so that's exactly what this word is in Greek. It's that he bought himself something that he really excited, was excited about. And we say, well, it's in him. Well, okay, so, you know, pastor, you really got a weak point here. You're using the English here. And, well, I've gone through this in Greek, and it says exactly what the English says. Now, there's a few cute words, as I said, that you can add to this, but it's basically saying the same thing. So here's the question. Is it possible that the basic sentence here is that... He chose the process through Christ before the foundation of the world so that we can be holy and blameless in his sight. So you can't be holy and blameless in God's sight unless you have a plan to make a person holy and blameless in God's sight. It just doesn't happen that way. And I'll show you some scriptures about that in a few minutes. But what I want to do is just have some fun right here. Pennsylvania Dutch. Are you familiar with the Pennsylvania Dutch? Are you familiar with that? Okay, I grew up in Pennsylvania and I love shoe fly pie, especially a good wet bottom shoe fly pie. And I like hog maw, but don't give me scrapple. I don't care how you cook that, forget that, or no head cheese for me. So Pennsylvania Dutch people are great people and they come uh, all shapes and sizes from the uh, religious groups of the Amish and the Shakers clear up to the, the Mennonites and stuff that are more godly people and just wonderful people to be with. But they have weird language, okay? Weird language. And here's some of their weird phraseology, okay? Throw mama down the stairs her hat. Throw mama 
down the stairs her hat. Or throw the cow over the fence a bale of hay. Throw the cow over the fence. Now you're thinking right away, these Pennsylvania Dutch, they are very strange people. They're very cruel to their mother. And they're very strong because they can throw an 1,100 pound cow over the fence. But that's not what they're saying. It is a culturally bound sentence structure, okay? The vernacular is very culturally bound. And here's the problem. Here it is, right here. Here's the crux of the matter, people. Get this. If the details are before the point, you often lose the point, the meaning. Culture plus um, circumstances dictate your context. If you do not understand the culture, you will often miss the context. You will misinterpret. Is this identifiable to, is it identifiable to what we're looking at here? Yes, it's almost identical, almost identical to what is going on here. Apparently in this structural of this extended sentence that we've never ever heard of such a thing, this, you know, sentence going out into ad nauseum, there is a cultural problem with this sentence that we do not understand unless we go a little further in our food chain on hermeneutics and get down to the culture and understanding the culture. I take people to Israel because I want them to understand the culture of the Bible that uh, they are reading. I get them over there. I show them exactly what's going on. They go back home and they read their scriptures with a whole new insight because of cultural understanding. Is this a cultural complex sentence? Well, of course it is. It's the longest thing that we says anyway. It's the longest sentence in mankind. All right, who wrote this? The apostle Paul wrote this. Is he a highly educated man? Well, of course he is. He grew up in Cilicia. You know, it's compared to Alexandria, if you know anything about that. And so then, uh, you know, he is uh, taught by Gamaliel in, in Jerusalem, which is a highly educated professor. This guy is highly educated. If he wrote this sentence, he would have gotten slapped with a ruler if it was wrong. But it wasn't wrong. It's correct. And we have no comprehension of a sentence this long. So yes, we are dealing with a culturally bound and a culturally complex sentence. So that much we know. Is it possible that because of how it is broken down, that we have the details before the point? And when we read it in English, we don't understand language like the Pennsylvania Dutch. It's where Yoda came from. <laughs> Throw mother down the stairs, her hat, you will. Okay, so... All right, so what do we have? <clears throat> if this is a culturally complex sentence, if this is the <clears throat> details before the point, <clears throat> if this is saying that what was chosen was the way of salvation and that only the objects are affected by that later on through progressive, actually this uh, point here in this verse is talking about progressive sanctification. It's really not, you cannot prove uh, positional sanctification even in this verse. So that's kind of interesting. But anyway, if verse four is about the how and not the who, that changes everything. So then you got to ask yourself, well, we got to go further then in our formula here to see if that would agree then with scripture. Well, of course it agrees with scripture. We have multitudes of scripture that says that the plan was before the, the, the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. This was exciting to God. That's why he chose this idea for himself. 
Isaiah 41, 1, uh, Matthew 13, 35, Titus chapter 1, verse 2, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. If I went too fast, buy the CD. It's $100 for the pastor's gold wing fund. Okay, anyway. So we have uh, this plan was before the foundation of the world. All right, and so then we got to ask ourselves, what is the plan? Well, the plan is to come through Jesus Christ. You all know that. Come through Jesus Christ. And it has four parts to this. You must hear the word. You must believe that it's true. But you got to go further than that because Satan knows that it's true and he ain't getting saved. So we have the fourth, uh, the third one is then you've got to believe it for yourself. That's where faith comes in. And please, please do not negate faith as a part of salvation plan. And then the fourth thing here is something that the Holy Spirit does. He seals you. All right, so we know this is true in the contextual study of the rest of the scriptures, but then we should see something within our own context. Within those 11 verses, which is one long sentence, we get to the point in verse 13. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, and you also were included. Huh? Yeah, you were included in this plan, is what he's saying. And then he uses this word. Check this out. When. What? What just happened there? All right. What just happened there is what your eventual teenagers will be telling you. It's a but word. You know, you tell them, you're going to blah, 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 blah. And they're going to go, yes, mom, yes, dad, but. Meaning everything that you just said is negated. Right here now is the real truth, mom and dad. So I thought I'd clue you in a little bit. The but word in the Bible is an amazing word. It deletes everything that was before it. Everything that comes after it has been changed. Here is a type of but word. When. In other words, there is a timing issue here. When. How are we included in this? When. And what does it say? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed it through faith, basically, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit of your what? Guarantee. In other words, before when, there's no deposit. There's no Holy Spirit. There's no guarantee. And this also agrees with portion after portion of Scripture, Acts 2, Romans 10, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Peter 1, and on and on and on. Right here in our own context, it tells us that obviously we were not saved before the foundation of the world. Now, you say, okay, wait, 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 being saved, that's when it happens, see? But you were chosen before the foundation of the world. In other words, God already preordained that you were to be saved before the foundation of the world. Well, listen, Paul wrote this. So let's take a look at some of the writings of Paul. Romans chapter 10, verse 13, Paul asks this question. He asks this question about the world. He says, how then can they be saved? Now, if he already knew the answer to that, he wouldn't have asked that question. But he asked the question, how can these people be saved? There's a problem in this portion of scripture here because there's an assumption that people are not saved. There's an assumption. Jesus himself in John chapter 3, in John chapter 3, he says, do not condemn the world because they are what? What's the rest of that verse? You should read your Bibles, really. Do not condemn the world because they are condemned already. Ezekiel 18, verse 20 says, The soul that sinneth it shall... Shall what? Ride in Pastor Jed's triumph. No. The soul that sinneth it shall... Die. 
That's separation from God for eternity. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. Who does that include? Who does that include? You guys, not me. (laughs) Okay. Um, You know, everybody, and what is the payment of that? If everybody has sinned, what is the payment every one of us are facing? Death. Thank you. You're starting to come awake. All right. So here's the point. Here's the point. It is predestined for everyone to go to hell. Yep. Everybody here. That's what you deserve. Isn't that wonderful? You see the ads on TV. Get the loan you deserve. You know, get the car you deserve. Get the girl if you use this product you deserve. You know, if you got what you deserved, you'd go to hell. And God says, we got a problem here. And he figures this out and he says, you know what? We're going to send Jesus. He's going to die. He's going to make that payment. And then anybody who chooses this way that I have chosen gets to go to heaven. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, that's the real choice for choices. That's pretty awesome. You know, verse 5 is basically understood uh, by this word adoption, which is not the English understanding of adoption at all. It's not being put into another family. This isn't, again, about salvation. It's about the rights of the son as they are put in. And so this is referring to Romans 8, 29, where we are... Um, uh, being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, agreeing with 2 Corinthians 3.18. That also says that is a process as we are being conformed daily from glory unto glory. Now, in the three minutes we got left, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story. Culturally bound, okay? Culturally bound. I've worked with a foreign country that was closed country. You could not get into it for about 10 years. When it opened up, a group of us went over and started ministering to the Christians that were already there, just supporting their ministry. I went over and built churches and taught in their Bible schools and so and so forth. And we were with them for about 10 years. And all of a sudden, one day, the uh, term election showed up and, and they go, what? And I, and I thought that was really interesting. And so some of the missionaries said, well, we need to teach these people about election. And I just real politely said, leave them alone, please. This culture's language is very identical to Greek language. And when they translated the Bible from Greek into their language, they did not see election as a part of the Bible. Just interesting. There are Muslims and, and um, different religions coming to the Lord just crazy right now. And when you translate the Greek into their language, their languages are so similar to Greek. They have no hardship with understanding the scriptures like you and I do. We look at it like we are the only people in the world. We are, you know... Uh, we're self-centered. And we look at these things. I mean, I can prove you're self-centered, right? I mean, you look at David and Goliath. You're never, you're never this loud, obnoxious guy that needs to take me out behind the school and stone to death. No, you're always this little innocent person, right, when you read David and Goliath because you're egocentric. And we look at Scripture egocentrically. We say it's talking about us. So we must have been chosen before the foundation of the world. And we misinterpret a portion of Scripture that is culturally bound just like the Pennsylvania Dutch. 
just like these other languages and like this foreign country that I was working with. And I was gassed by that when I understood that, but it taught me something. It taught me that I've got to do more than just looking at the words and understanding and interpreting the Greek. I've got to understand the culture to interpret the Bible correctly. Well, that's my thing. I'm done. You guys are dismissed.